Hello again, friends. Welcome or welcome back to The Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast where I'm all about having big, bold conversations on some of the big issues we face around environmentalism and humanity and society. This one's a doozy. I'd like to start by acknowledging that this podcast, this episode, was recorded on Lutrawita country in Tassie. I want to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of that beautiful land and, in fact, all First Nations people all around Australia and the world. So, yeah, this podcast was actually recorded back in March. I had just come out of the Tarkine, the Takina rainforest, learning all about the plight to protect it with the Bob Brown Foundation. You can go back and listen to that episode with Bob Brown and Scott Jordan. And I came out of the wilderness and I went straight to Launceston to meet with today's guest, a federal senator. And it was first thing on a Monday morning and I walked into his office and we went straight into some big, heavy hitting issues. And if I had to pick a theme for this conversation as a whole, I think it would be truth. You see, in the first half of this conversation, he shares his story about being true to himself. He shares his story about how he was a big-time banker in the World Trade Center in New York, but how he turned his back on that world to pursue his own truth, ultimately getting inspired by and involved in the protest against the war in Iraq. Then how he rallied against a pulp mill on his doorstep in Tasmania and how that led to him becoming a federal senator and advocating for environmental and social causes, things that he really, truly cared about. It's quite the journey. The second half of this conversation, we talk about the post-truth world that we live in around politics and the media. He goes into detail the case around Julian Assange and the precedent that this case sets for media freedom and the corruption by governments around both this case and the war in Iraq and the history around that. It's heavy, it's dark, but it is so important to have these big and open conversations about these things, to learn the history and the details and the reason why these issues matter so much to all of us. And of course, we talk about what we can do about it. It's not just about pointing the finger, but actually about going, okay, well, this is where we are. What are the actual opportunities for us to move forward? Look, I was so happy to be able to reach out directly to one of our elected representatives and be welcomed in on a Monday morning to have this type of conversation. It's very rare in our world of 24-hour news cycles and clickbait to have these types of media conversations, and it's really necessary. And as soon as I sat down with him, I could just tell that he was a really genuine human being who was just being true to himself and fighting for what he sees as the truth. So strap yourself in for this one with Senator Surfer Peter Wish Wilson. led down this path yeah. all right well maybe yeah. we just jump straight in yeah all right peter wish wilson thank you for coming on the show thanks for chatting to me james no worries absolute pleasure it's a, it's an honor to be here actually in your beautiful state and i've just come out of the wilderness and come into your office so <laughs> i'm yeah. on a bit of a high well this is where the world's first greens environmental party started in tassie um, mm. and you're kind of seeing in the manifestation of 50 years of activism and wow. a, a, 
bunch of people that realised reluctantly they had to go into parliament, they had yeah. to go into politics <laughs> to change the world. So reluctantly, yeah. And, and if I'll show you out there later, we've got all, all Bob Bob Brown's old uh, Senate campaign posters from from yes. the nineties, and yeah, it's a lot of history there. Yeah, awesome. I, I I met Bob and caught up with Bob this weekend as well, and this this whole experience of. Exactly as you say, experiencing that that energy in the community here, this birthplace of this environmental movement, it's it's amazing to experience. To be honest, it's it's awesome. (laughs) Um, So I want to start with a a lead-in question, which I always start with with all of my guests, which is kind of the premise of the show, which is the overview effect. So thinking about what I was telling you before we hit record. that, that those experiences that astronauts describe when they they see the earth and they feel this profound sense of connection to nature and humanity and wanting mm-hmm. to do something about it have you had a, a moment or an experience or something in your life that has shifted the way you see the world and kind of led you to where you are today wasn't quite looking down from a spaceship yeah but it was looking down from the the north tower of the world trade center which was quite high up in new york um and for me it was I reflected a lot on this, and I, I did put it in my first speech to the Senate. Um, for me, it was a moment. It was a moment of honesty and self-reflection. Um, I was looking out the window of the World Trade Center at the uh, the Statue of Liberty, and saw the, you know saw the Staten Island ferry going across. And I'd been living in New York for about eighteen months, but I was desperately unhappy mm. on a lot of levels. I missed I missed home. Uh, I missed the ocean as a surfer I, I did go surfing a couple of times but it was pretty bleak i was constantly on airplanes i was working at merrill lynch you know the junkyard dogs of uh international <laughs> yeah. finance and it lit i'd been in the army before so i knew i knew what it was like but uh in that kind of environment and and i you know i just hated myself and I put on about 20 kilos while I was there. I was really unhealthy. Wow. Did you kind and, of stumble down that career path? Yeah, it was the first job I got. Yeah, you know, wow. like I, I just Going back to the early 90s, you know, I'd graduated. I'd, I'd gone travelling around the world, uh, Left, got out of the army, got medically discharged, went travelling, um, fell in love with a French girl, went, you know, lived loved overseas, uh, lived in France for nearly 12 months, came home, tried to save some money, worked in the mines, um, couldn't, you know, couldn't get a job and eventually I got a foot in the door and it's the first job I took and um, yeah, it, it, it kind of led me down this path where I found myself moving from Perth in Western Australia to Melbourne and then in Melbourne I ended up getting a job in New York like the company advertised there was 400 people applied for it and I got it so it's one of those weird things and I thought geez that's a great experience so I'm going to go mm. but you know uh, I wasn't being honest with myself like it's I was just didn't know where I was going. I had no no real compass except for wanting to, you know, <laughs> I suppose experience the world, but it wasn't the experience I was after. Yeah. And in this particular point when I was looking out the window, I'd been – my company, Merrill Lynch, was sending me home to Australia. They decided I was too junior. You know, they'd bought my Australian company, to, which was called Macintosh. Mm. And, um, and they were saying, you're going home, mate. Look, you know, you're too junior to be here. I was only in my kind of mid-20s. And I got offered this amazing job by another big global bank. And they said, no way, you're going home, mate. We want you on our team. And I was in the um, recruitment op- recruitment guy's office. And he said to me, you know, he, he gave me the job offer. And I said, oh, look, to be honest, mate, I'm, you know, I'm not, not really interested. I think I've had enough. And he's like, yeah, you know, just give me this hard sales pitch. 
And he said, look, and I said, I've also got my going away party tonight and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. And he said, he said, make it a surprise party, tell everyone you're staying. I'm going to give you five minutes to think this through and I'll, I'll leave you alone. And I was in his office and I was looking out the window and, um, yeah, I just thought about reflecting on my life and uh, that was the first time I think I'd ever been true to myself. You know, I was just doing things for other people and I didn't know where I was going and I actually stopped. It was almost like a moment of mindfulness Mm. Or I thought, no, this is this, you, regardless of the money, and, and you know, if, if you want to be in that industry, that's the place to be. There's, that's the pinnacle of of your, of your career. But I just actually wanted to go home and and go surfing and be with my family. And there was the simple things in life that I really missed. So when he came back in, he he was really shocked when I told him <laughs> no. <laughs> he got quite angry with me. I remember, and um, yeah, actually, and, and not long, only a few years later, mate, that that building got demolished by an aeroplane. Wow. So um, you know, uh, I, I reflect on that a lot. But I decided then I was going to march to the sound of my own drum. Um, I still didn't know where I was going and what I was doing, and I ended up getting married, having kids, and it took me a few more years before I finally, you know. Um, carved my own path but the the moment where i really decided that that enough was enough um if i I put an instagram post on it this week because this saturday was the 18th anniversary of the iraq war the the beginning of hostilities and being an an ex-soldier nothing made me more angry in my life and still to this day nothing's made me more angry than the than australia joining the u.s and going to iraq it's been an absolute disaster, as we knew it was when we marched. And it was the first protest I ever went in was against the Iraq War as a banker in Sydney. And I did actually arrive, oh, because I lived in Manly, I had a great life. My client base was in Asia, they were three hours behind, so I didn't have to get to work till 10 o'clock in the morning. I'd surf every morning, get the ferry. Arrived at Circular Quay, um, and then all this activity, helicopters, and, and there was these fellas being arrested up on the Opera House for painting No War in massive big red uh, red sign. They'd been, up there, they'd been up there that night, a couple of doctors. And I remember thinking that was one of the bravest things I'd ever seen. And, and that, that day, that was it. I decided I was going to be brave and make the change too. So wow. I just said, didn't know what I was going to do, so I told my wife that was... You know, it was all over. We were only renting in Sydney. So we dropped out and we moved down to Tassie and, and kind of that's been a whole new adventure. So, yeah. Wow. There's a couple of things in there. But, yeah, that, they were the moments where I think to better understand the world and my role in the world and what I could do to help, mm. I had to be honest with myself first. So that self-reflection was what led to that. Yeah, absolutely. So, those, mm. are, those are amazing reflections, two really pivotal moments. The yeah. The first one deciding where you want to be and who you want to be with and doing something for yourself. And then the second one, realizing there's a cause greater than yourself that you want to commit yourself to or that you want to advocate for. And those are amazing, pivotal moments. And the other thing that I'm I'm hearing as you say that is that those two activists that did that, some people might see a, a an act of activism and think who are these idiots you know and they're mm. getting a little bit of media attention then it's all over because they get arrested but look at what they've done just in you yeah. and everything that you've gone on to do from their actions and who knows how yeah. many other people that they influenced as well and i managed to meet i met them at a, at a peace oh, wow. rally a few years ago in sydney and one of them said yeah someone sent me a copy of your first speech <sighs> to parliament so thank you and i'm like well no mate thank you that's you know, so cool who knows where I would have been if that if that hadn't happened? I think that really kind of 
tip me over the edge. But it's interesting, you know, you can you can run, but you can't hide from the world. Mm-hmm. And I thought coming to Tassie would be because my my parents had a beautiful property here, uh, and interestingly, I'd already planted a vineyard as a way of kind of, you know putting one foot firmly on terra firma and you know, on earth and I was uh, already studying at that stage at back Charles Sturt learning you know I was studying science I was doing stuff I never paid attention to at school you know so, you know soil science and chemistry and all these kind of things so I was I think in a way I was already correcting myself but I had a pathway there Tassie was a place I wanted to be mm. my family were there I had my, my vineyard I wanted to do that so yeah it was a great new adventure but as soon as I got here um, I ended up getting caught up in a in a massive environmental fight because, you know, um, my family property, the new world that I, you know, my, you know, my dream of just growing my own food and living on the farm, bringing up my kids, this idyllic thing had just been smashed mm. with one of the, you know one of the world's biggest pulp mills being built next to the farm and and yeah they were going to pump thirty billion liters of toxic industrial waste in the ocean every year where I was surfing and and that that was kind of the final the final straw for me so I went and visited the company I didn't I didn't in re, originally I didn't. Um, didn't rally against it. I went and thought I'll go because I've spent a lot of time working with corporations in my old job. Um, and the fellow I met, you know, he was really arrogant. He put his feet up on the in his desk when he was talking to me and was tapping on his computer. And I looked at him and thought, mate, if you're the kind of bloke that's going to be building a pulp mill in the Tamo Valley next to my farm and polluting the ocean, I'm going to fight you. Like mm. it was just instant. Like I, I had a read of, read of him straight away, got his measure, and I thought, no way, I'm going to trust you or anyone else in this company. Not after that, he was one of the most senior executives. So that's when I started getting involved, and of course I met the Greens, and we had this incredible alliance. Like it was, they were going to rip all the old growth forests in this this state. Like over 50 years, all of it would have gone. Uh, it would have just been this hungry beast devouring everything, but. They would have polluted the ocean. They would have polluted the atmosphere. I was campaigning with doctors, with fishermen, with forest campaigners, with the Greens, um, with anti-corruption campaigners because the company wrote their own legislation and faxed it to Parliament who rammed it through Parliament. It was, without a doubt, one of the darkest episodes in Tasmania's history. So, you know, I kind of found myself caught up in all that. And then and then someone said, oh, mate, you know, like... um." You know, we've got to get rid of these politicians. That they're, they're all behind it, except for the Greens. Every single one of them supported it. And so I thought, oh, you know, the, the Greens. I didn't really know them too well, but um, someone said, "Would you run as an independent?" And I said, "Sure." So I put my hand up to run as an independent against the pulp mill. That was it. And then I met Bob to do preferences in the election and realised that they they were my party. That they represented everything that I represented. They were the only ones supporting me. So I pulled pulled out and got behind them. And the next thing you know, he's tapping me on the shoulder and saying, "Would you run for us as a candidate?" And that's where I got to understand that you need a political pathway to get to win these huge battles. You can do, you can, you can, you can have all the best intentions in the world and all the best, most positive energy and relentless, you know, uh, campaigns. But you actually need to go into politics to to get that change. You need to get rid of the politicians that won't listen to you. you need to get your own people in there to change from the inside. So mm. yeah, that's where it all started. Wow! Wow! And amazing, mm. amazing to hear that. I, I knew a bit about your background, but I hadn't heard that full story. And mm. it's incredible for someone to turn their back on what modern society would deem as the ultimate pinnacle of success in a high lofty tower in New York with a big banking firm to start you know, be on the other side of the world and little tiny Tasmania 
rallying against a, a timber mill or yeah. a pulp mill, that's massive. That's a massive journey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly been an interesting one. And and I also love in that the how you reflected on you can't hide from the world, you know, yeah. and, and I think a lot of us in the face of environmental or political or whatever challenges and all the mm. terrible media news we hear out there, we want to... We have these dreams of, I know I do sometimes, buying a big block of land and putting water tanks and solar panels on it and cutting off the rest of the world yeah. and just being my own little self-sufficient bubble. But you can't do that. You've got to be in the community and you've got to be connected. You you've do. got to advocate for the leadership and the, the issues that you care about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, taking um, taking action is just a positive thing, you know, like it doesn't matter what it is that people can do. Obviously, going down the road I went and going into politics is, is probably a fairly extreme version of that, but um, mm. you, you've met some of the people this weekend that have been, like Jenny and Bob and others that have been campaigning for the Tarkine, um, Lisa Searle, like they, I mean, they're, they're, they're in the forest every day mm. um, getting arrested or with people getting arrested, you know, they're just relentless and, and they've made a huge, huge difference. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's always someone who's doing more than you, but people just even signing petitions and, and go, attending rallies and volunteering for political parties or for NGOs, whatever you can do can make a difference at all. And it's all very positive to you because if you do care about the world. Um, I think it's, it's a, you know, you just get sucked in by this huge black hole of negativity and, and yeah. bitterness if you don't actually do something. So. Yeah. And you've got to have that vision, that longer term vision and strategy on what you want to achieve after the, that act of activism or that blockade or that petition or whatever that issue is, right. which comes back to why you need to have that, that end game. Yeah. And both from a, an effectiveness point of view, but also from a mental positivity point of view to go, oh, this is what we're, our goal is, not just to be constantly fighting every single battle. Our goal is to go there and That's achieve right. those outcomes. Yeah, and actually, interestingly, on that, um, see, I, I took over from Bob Brown in 2012, and it was uh, only maybe four or five months into being a senator that um, guns, the company, were fighting. Um, and, and, of course, the government, um, the guns went into liquidation. They collapsed mm. for a number of reasons, but the, the community campaign was, you know, it was global and certainly national and they also had the GFC, and we managed to turn all the banks against them, and uh, and it was, you know, so we had a big victory there. And then I was on, I was being interviewed by Fran Kelly on Radio National, uh, and she said, "Well, what now? You know, you've only just got into <laughs> Senate, and have because <laughs> that's, you know, obviously the reason I went into politics, I'd run in three elections for the Greens to try and stop that project. And once again, you know, you just look around you, and and guns is just a microcosm of exactly the same thing just happening on a bigger scale you know with climate change with with ocean pollution with mm. like whether it's plastics in the ocean or whether it's burning fossil fuels or exploring for oil and gas it's exactly the same model of corporations um donating to political parties calling the shots getting what they want you know and every environmental problem and, and nearly every social problem um is caused by a business decision that's it's an it's an economic problem but underneath that it's actually a political problem because it's politics that should be solving those problems correcting them 
but they're not. They're making them worse. So I keep saying to people, every environmental problem is a political problem first and foremost, and if you don't deal with it at a political level, then you'll never solve it. And so I've just spent the last nine years in the Senate just fighting corporations, Mm. Um, and I could give you lots of examples on what we've been doing, but... Uh, it's never ending. Uh, until we until we change the system, we'll never yes. solve these prob- big big challenges like climate change. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a it's a it's a multi pronged approach because some people go, oh, it's got to be bottom up or it's got to be top down. But you need the absolutely need the political pathway. We need to change the mentality, and I think we slowly are of kind of the next generations and the way that they yeah. care about corporate social responsibility. Um, people that work for a lot of organizations now would prefer to work for ethical businesses so there's a mentality shift that needs to occur and then when you when you can achieve that and who knows how how to do that but that's what we're all working towards but when you can achieve that then a lot of these issues as you say the the microcosms they're the symptoms yeah you know they will start to go away yeah Yeah. in fact businesses in many ways are leading you know you look at climate change there because the way they operate they need certainty um, and they may not be doing it you know, um, out of it, out of compassion or a good place in their heart, they're doing it because it affects their profits. But mm. they may do the right thing. Yeah. Um. You know, they they need to be able to manage their their. You know, the what is it? I'll go back to being an economics lecturer here, but they need to um, maximise the present value of future cash flows. <laughs> in other words, that's that by law they have to manage yes. those risks. Otherwise, yes. they're not doing their fiduciary duty. So, um, yeah, the businesses are way ahead of the government. Uh, in many in many respects, sadly, not all businesses. Uh, some some have you know the model of just operating, yeah, con- trying to control political parties. And the fossil fuel industry is, is a classic example of that. It oh, it, and and it's not just political parties; it's media as well. And I know that something that you've been this is my segue <laughs> something that you've been campaigning very hard for recently, and you touched on the the inspiration in your life with that no war sign and the 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 war in iraq and we've just passed the anniversary of the start of that war and you've been campaigning very hard um for julian assange's freedom which is very obviously linked to um that campaign and that war can you tell us a bit i mean it was it was actually a long time ago and i was reflecting on it. i was only 14 at the time so i really don't know a huge amount of the backstory of kind of Assange and WikiLeaks and you've been a catalyst for me to learn more but Mm. can you kind of paint the picture a little bit about why you're campaigning so hard now? Well well, obviously as as I said earlier I've never been as angry about anything as I was about the stupidity Mm. and and the the arrogance um, that led us into the war in Iraq I mean Howard Howard and and Blair were you know George Bush's kind of uh, you know Oh, oh, I've got to be careful what I say here, but <laughs> um, look, they, 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 they were chomping at the bit to go to war, yeah. right? Um, and yeah. Blair, the, uh, under FOI in, in an inquiry in the US, so in the UK, Blair had written a note to Bush saying, we, we, we were going to be with you no, no matter what, like, we, no matter what but barriers are put up, we're going to war. Um, and um, I remember... I remember sitting out, my, actually on a surfboard, I was out surfing uh, at DY one day and um you know out of out of the it was early in the morning and out of the fog and you know it was kind of really misty morning and out of the fog just emerged these dark shape massive dark shapes and it was a u.s fleet uh, on its way to iraq aircraft carriers and boats and i remember looking at it going how do you touch that how do you stop that you know um 
it just felt totally helpless. Well, I tell you, I tell you, I tell you what did touch that power, um, and that was WikiLeaks. Mm. Um, the Julian Assange and WikiLeaks weren't really on the map, kind of, till Iraq came along, and because Chelsea Manning, uh, a, a soldier at the time, had leaked information to them, and she, you know, she was, she was. Uh, shaken to her core with some of the things she was seeing working in intelligence for the US and so she dumped these files on WikiLeaks and um, what it showed was the kind of cavalier attitude that the US had to their rules of engagement in Iraq and and the collateral murder video mm. uh, if any if people listening haven't seen it um, it's not easy viewing but I do recommend they watch it and it'll it'll take you to a dark place but yeah it's necessary to understand that what happened in that video, the gunning down of um, journalists and innocents, um, and, and the you know the pilots laughing about it and making jokes and yeah, how and casual you, they are, how, just how cavalier and casual they were towards human life. <laughs> yeah, it happened every day in Iraq, and and estimates are over a million reliable estimates. The Lancet, you know, a very conservative um, medical journal, put it over six hundred thousand civilian lives, but new estimates are over a million that were killed. Uh, it led to the rise of ISIS and, and a huge ramp up in global ter- terrorism. Um, it led to the Syrian civil war, which led to millions of people moving across Europe and across, and nothing good has come of it. And we who marched knew that nothing good mm. was going to come of it. We all knew that in our hearts, that this was the wrong thing to do. No one's ever been brought to account on the basis of this. And now, just to make matters worse, to rub it in our face, they're going after the truth teller of this war, which is Julian Assange. Um, it's re- this is this is really important. He has a very famous quote that you'll probably see on social media saying, um, "If interesting, this quote goes back to kind of in the early days of the Iraq War." He says, "If wars can be started by lies, and let's the, the war that led us into Iraq was the biggest lie I think I'll ever see in my lifetime, the worst mass deception and deceit. Um, it was a total fabrication, and some of the most powerful people in the world were directly behind that. And the media, especially the Murdoch press, were very happy to pro- to promulgate this. That somehow Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Of course, it's turned out to be a total fabrication. Julian said, "If wars can be started by lies." They can be stopped by the truth. Mm. And everything he published was 100% factual because they were leaked documents. And it turns out in his court case for extradition, um, uh, the Iraqi parliament, because of the disclosures of WikiLeaks, which showed war crimes, and I've only touched on just a surface of what they showed, you know, the torture of Iraqis, the whole lot, it was all disclosed. Um, The Iraqi parliament withdrew immunity for U.S. soldiers that they'd had prior to that. So prior to that, U.S. soldiers were immune from war crimes for their time in Iraq. The Iraqi parliament, which is set up by the U.S., withdrew that immunity. And that was a key reason that the U.S. withdrew most of their troops from Iraq. So WikiLeaks disclosures, in many ways, did end the war. But Julian had always said that as a kind of, you know, as a as a frame for people, but actually it turned out to be the truth. Mm. So, um, you know, now, um, 18 years later, they're still going after the guy that uh, embarrassed them. He just he he embarrassed powerful people, and now you have you know the, arguably the most powerful empire in human history with all its resources going after one man. Mm. They've already broken him. Like the judge said, she wouldn't extradite him because he's a broken, sick man. Um, and they're still continuing. They're appealing that to get him to the US. So what this is about is not just you know the, everybody can see how unfair it is for themselves and. Um, the deeper issues are, though, if truth-tellers, especially the press, 
are able to be extradited to a foreign country for activities that they have done on foreign soil. This has never happened before, by the way. This espionage charge, this is this is the, a precedent. Um, then press freedoms are at stake here. Mm. Uh, and if the media can't publish, uh, you know, leaked documents that are in the public interest, then we will go to another war like this. And, yeah. and, and, and it could be a lot worse. So we'll, history will repeat itself if we don't stand and fight for Julian Assange because... You, you know, you can imagine if, as a journalist, you were to publish something about Saudi Arabia in Australia, like Jamal Khashoggi, the yeah. the guy who got cut up with a bone saw in the. Have you the, seen the t- dissident? I have seen the dissident. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So can you imagine Saudi Arabian government going after you and saying, yeah. "Well, we're going to extradite James because he's 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 published uh, state secrets that have embarrassed us," um, and this will set a precedent where foreign countries can extradite a foreign citizen for activities on foreign soil. Espionage has always been for your citizens on your soil. Mm. Now the US are trying to get an Australian citizen who you know it was based out of London. So if this happens, we're fucked. Yeah. We really are fucked if this happens. Yeah. Wow. There's there's so much in there, and it's so, and I think a lot of people on face value they hear, oh, Julian Assange. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's horrible what's happening to him, but he's one man. But yeah, and it is horrible, and he should be given obviously justice and the right to freedom. But you're absolutely right that this is a huge precedent that I don't think the general public are understanding. No, it's extremely chilling. Yeah, the precedent that this sets, which is exactly as you say, that people can't shed light on the truth. No, what it boils down to. And look, it's really interesting. Obviously, Julian knew back in 2012, 13, he was at risk of being extradited to the US. So he went into the Ecuadorian embassy. And over this last seven years, um, uh, look, as a politician, I've just been looking at this. Whoever they are, and I look, there's no doubt it's the US uh, security agencies, uh, and not just the US, Australian and UK are very complicit in this. They've just done the most, uh, you know, incredible hatchet job on this guy. You know, the, the the key thing I hear from people is I don't like him because you know he's a he, he's a rapist or he's a narcissist mm. or he helped get Trump elected. They've just put all this stuff out there. That's destroyed his, uh, completely defamed and destroyed his character. Um, and and I say to people, look, even if that's true, that's not the principle here. He's mm. not being extradited for for allegations of rape against him. He's not being extradited because he's a narcissist or he helped Trump get elected. He's being extradited for uncovering war crimes in the yeah. in, in Iraq. Yeah, um, and you've got to try and separate that stuff off here. Um, we see I, it all the time, though. We see we see. There's that classic adage, play the ball, not the man. You know, yeah. we see it with everything. We see scientists, uh, environmental scientists being discredited for their personal, you know, right. lives. It's, it's a very common tactic that is, is used to sway public opinion. Well, we'll look at Morrison got caught out recently with Brittany Higgins's disclosures. Um, on one hand, he was saying he believed her and support wanted to support her. And on the other hand, we know for a fact that he was his media team was backgrounding the press gallery up in Canberra. Um, get, digging up dirt on her partner and saying oh. her partner was behind all this, so it, it's ha- it happening every. Oh, wow. It happens every day. It's yeah. it's it's horrific, and it's it's just all all examples of the 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 point oh one percent of the you know the elites that are trying to essentially control public opinion, and we're all unconsciously yeah. complicit in it by just. Not and and and, and educating you know, we, ourselves. We really find ourselves in extraordinary days, James. Like um, the 
even the Australian Parliament has been the most chaotic period in our nation's parliamentary history. Uh, in the last 10 years, especially the last five years, we've never seen anything like it. Uh, and of course, what's happened in the US with Trump and then the storming of the Capitol um, is totally unprecedented. Yeah. And, and, this, and funny enough, this post-truth world where a president can get caught out lying over 30,000 times formally and getting and get away with it and not be held to account. This idea that if you have a big enough platform, you can create your own reality. Mm. This started with the Iraq war. It was, Rumsf- it was Rumsfeld and Cheney. And if none of you listeners have seen the movie Vice, they, they should watch it. They started this. It was their, they, they coined the phrase post-truth world. Wow. They actually said, you know, we it, we can create our own reality and, and, and politics, that's what politics is now. And people are rightly cynical and disillusioned and dis, you know disenfranchised and because um, they don't know what's the truth and what's not anymore, you know. It's it's a really, really dangerous time. Yeah. Hence, no, no disputing that what WikiLeaks dumped was 100% factual. Mm. Every single bit of it. And that's what's unique about their journalism versus... You know, a, a leak report getting given to the press, where the press write it up and put their own. You know, yeah. These are just documents, and then everybody, they're a resource for everybody to have a look at. Yeah. That's why their that's why their disclosures were so powerful. Yeah. They wow. didn't touch anything. And and for anyone that might think, or that you know, there are media reports, or might think, well, do you know what, Julian Assange? I, I agree with the freedom of speech and truth, but what he was doing was putting lives at risk, you yeah. know, military personnel at risk. Just go back and watch that video that you talked about, yeah, and that chilling footage from the helicopter. And as soon as you watch that, you'll realise who was on the right side of trying that, to right. do the right thing. That's right. And look, that that was that's been looked into. Like the US themselves, the US Senate has actually looked into whether the WikiLeaks disclosures did mm. uh, put anyone at risk. And and hundred percent, no evidence has ever been provided that people that were in those disclosures were put at risk. They actually redacted a lot of stuff, and so did the Washington Post and the Guardian and those media outlets that use it. They did they did redact a lot of stuff. Um, it wasn't WikiLeaks that. Uh, disclose people's names um it was actually some journalists who wrote a book and um ex- accidentally if you believe it there's mixed theories on this they disclosed the past the password to get into the wikileaks uh disclosures oh, yeah. which allowed you to have a look at the unredacted copies so wikileaks actually did redact all that stuff um and didn't disclose that and and even if they did um, the evidence has shown that, and this was in the court case in London. Looked at all this, mm. no one, there was no evidence that anyone's lives were were, were risked. Mm. Um, so, yeah. But putting that aside, how many how many hundreds and thousands of millions of Iraqis were killed because yeah. of what we did? Yeah, and, yeah. And that's 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 the flip side, right? There's no doubt. I mean, General Tommy Franks, who ran the U.S. invasion of Iraq, when he was asked about civilian casualties, his response to the media was, "We don't count body bags. Go away." That was his response to the media. Wow. They didn't give a shit. If you were over there, you were fair game. An Iraqi life was worth less than a, than a coalition life. Mm. That, was, that was a clear that yeah. was a clear message. And that helicopter, if you keep watching through the awful bit where the, you know, the, the ambulance comes to pick up the people that have already been shot and then they get all butchered by the helicopter, if you keep watching it and it goes for 30 minutes, 10, 15 minutes later, you start seeing that helicopter um, on on reports coming in that some, they'd seen some people walking into buildings, just people, no other information put on it. That helicopter starts demolishing entire building blocks, 
firing missiles into entire building blocks. Wow. Like it just goes on. And that was just a brief disclosure of 30 minutes of a war in Iraq. You wonder what else happened. But the civilian casualties speak for themselves. Oh, my gosh. It's it's devastating and brutal, but it is so important. And I guess a lot of people walk unconsciously through day-to-day life scrolling or distracted and either unaware of these issues or head in the sand even because it can be so much weight to bear. Um, but we we can't stand idly by while this sort of yeah. stuff goes on. So what what can people do? You know, what what someone sitting here listening that really cares about it and might go and watch this video, might under, might try to seek to understand more about Assange. But what can they actually do that will have an impact? So the Australian government's done nothing to help him, um, and they can. Um, all it would take is a phone call. Um, in fact, we know from speaking to his lawyers that uh, Trump was very close to pardoning. Assange. Um, but he and, tried and, to bargain with him, didn't he? He tried to dangle a carrot in front of him. Well, not 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 that I'm aware of with Trump, but but what what we were what we were told is that it, Trump wanted a phone call from the Australian government to give him cover because he was worried about his impeachment trial, so he wanted to keep the hawks, the right wing conservatives in the Republican Party on side. But had he had a phone call from the Australian government requesting they. They, they released Assange or walked away from the extradition, Trump said he would have done it. Wow. That's what I, I'm, I've heard that from people very close to Julian. Mm. The thing is, Australians doing nothing at all, because probably because our intelligence agencies are so close to the US intelligence agencies. Um, so what, what we can do, and this is really important, we had a similar situation with David Hicks uh, after the Iraq war. So for, for your listeners who aren't aware, David was an Australian, uh, misguided, young man who ended up finding himself fighting for the Taliban in Afghanistan. Now, he was caught, taken a prisoner of war with a gun in his hand, would have been fighting Australian uh, and US forces, was sent to Guantanamo Bay. Um, And his father, like Julian's father, ran a campaign to get him released. He was never tried. He was tortured. Um, His father said, look, he's done the wrong thing. Like he was a young man, he was lost, He's got, he had some mental health issues, um, he was looking for a cause and, and these guys exploited him and he was radicalised like a lot of young men, especially men, are radicalised. Um, and it, I know he's been bad, but he's just a boy, give him a second chance. So everyone thought that was impossible, but back then, because you know, this is in the middle of the Iraq after 9-11 and all that fear and loathing that yeah. went with it. Um, we managed to get him out of Guantanamo Bay through a political campaign because um, his father ran a campaign in uh, Mayo, which is a marginal seat in South Australia, where Alexander Downer was based. And there was all these big yellow signs around the election signs, release Hicks. So it became a campaign to put pressure on politicians. And John Howard intervened and phoned the US and they let him go. Mm. And they brought him home. And now he's off... You know, he's not allowed to publish any accounts of what he's done, but he's living anonymously somewhere in Australia, but at least he's home. Mm. So um, we know that we know that our government can, especially because we have a close relationship with the US, yeah. we can say he's, he's, compl- he's broken, his mental health, it's, it's all there to be seen. The judges said this in the UK, enough is enough. You've made your point. Um, in fact, from the US's point of view, and I did a speech on this in the Senate recently, I you know put a, an urgent plea out to the new attorney general and the president to let him go they've won yeah the judge gave them everything they wanted in their substantive case the judge said he's broken and you've just you've destroyed him so i can't send him to you because he'll he'll die in a u.s prison if they do continue this and he dies they'll martyr him 
uh, if they send him to the US, the the press the, the trial is going to be on press freedom because the US has a First Amendment, and that's why Obama didn't try and extradite Assange because he knew that he would be breaching the US First Amendment, which is freedom of press. So the US it only gets worse for the US from here on in, uh, and in, in in terms of the court of public opinion, they should let him go. And look, they can come after him any time, anywhere. They've made that really clear. So politically speaking, they've now got the high ground. They should walk away. Yeah. Let this guy go. Yeah. Yeah. If they try, if you're right, if they trial him, it just brings a whole bunch of new light into press freedom, and yeah. they, they're going to lose that in the court of exactly as you well, say. In the I court hope of they do opinion. lose it because our whole democracy is at stake if, yeah. we, if we if we lose press freedom. Yeah. It really is. Even in this post truth world, it's the last thing we've got left. Yeah. You've got people like the Greens in Parliament fighting, you know, trying to keep the bastards on us and stand up to them. I'm working on a couple of other whistleblowers like, you know, Witness K and, and Bernard Clary and David McBride. Yeah. I did a rally with them in Canberra last week. And whistleblowers are, you know, they're if you blow the whistle because you see something that's not in the public interest and something that's dangerous and needs to be exposed, you're going to jail and they're not going to ever let up on you. Mm. Um, you know, this is this is a really, really dangerous precedent if we go down, further down this road. Yeah. So, you know. Well, I, the, the call to action is that we all actually can. We, it's been done in the past and we can it do has it again. We, you, we can make a difference. And you know what? Call I say, your MPs, write them letters, go and visit them. Yeah. And let it, them know. it doesn't matter what electorate you're in. I had this exact conversation about uh, yesterday in the at the Forest Defenders Camp with, with Scott. Yeah. And he was saying... What you do, if you want to protect this rainforest, call your MP. What you do matters because that's how people, that's how politicians start to make change when people demand it of them. And this is exactly the Because they only care the about same. votes. At the end of the day, yeah. it's all about votes. You know, sometimes they won't even read your email that you send them or your letter. But what they do is they count them. Yeah. If they don't read them, they, they certainly count them. They'll, they generally will, will read it and respond eventually. But if they see enough people coming through the door or on the online mm. saying, I want you to campaign to release Assange mm. uh, or pick up the phone and call the president in the US, um, it will start mattering because they only care about votes. I know it's been yeah. really cynical, but that's the truth. And if enough people do it in enough electorates, then it, becomes it, it comes up in a party room meeting Correct. and people go, oh, people in my electorate are talking to me about that too. Correct. Well, the good thing is um, Labor, the Labor Party have shifted their position in the last 12 months. So I was completely friendless when I, Andrew, with, apart from Andrew Wilkie, another <laughs> Tasmanian, mm. um, we set up the Friends of Parliamentary Assange Group 18 months ago in federal parliament and we managed to recruit a few, and we've got some other people from my party room recruited, but um, now we've got good representation from Labor. We've just had a Liberal join too, so it's taken a long time. Mm. But um, the Labor Party seemed to have shifted. Albo's made some statement, re- statements recently that he wants to see the extradition stop. Mm. Um, and Labor took a very principled position against the Iraq war. They, they did, you know. As much as we joke about they've got no principles anymore, um, they, they, they did actually take a strong position against the Iraq war and they opposed it and they were right. And, um, you know, I've reminded the, uh, the, uh, the Labor... Um, you know, Shadow Attorney General, um, Mark Dreyfus, about this. And uh, I understand he did a, an interview recently for a, um, a big international documentary on Assange. They came to Parliament House a few weeks ago and interviewed him. And I heard, I, I don't know about exactly what he said, but I, it sounded like Labor's 
sympathetic to uh, calling on the US to walk away from this or have done so directly. So we've got an opposition now. Yeah. It's taken a while, but we've got there. And you've, and, and so it sounds like now we've got an opportunity because momentum is building Correct. right now. It, yeah. it is it is building. And, and, and young people like yourself are learning about this, you know, because mm-hmm. you, 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 you weren't there when the Iraq war happened or you, you may not remember it and, and, and just how much it kind of hijacked people's worlds. So it was mm-hmm. a really dark time, a really yeah. dark time. Wow. Mm. And we don't want to see it happen again. And oh, it, I tell you what, I look you in the eye, it will happen again in our lifetime if we don't do something about this. Yeah. Just yeah. the way I've seen the way the machine works, man, and it's not good. Wow. Mm. I can I can get that. I can mm. really feel that from you. And mm. um, I want to I want to say thank you for your time, not yeah. just, but not just for your time. And by the way, you know, messaging back and forth on Instagram, like I just <laughs> kind of stalked you on it's Instagram, like a bit of a creep. <laughs> but the fact that I got you know that we've got one of our federal senators who's able to just sit down and talk deeply and passionately and bring that those humanistic values mm. back into politics you're not a political robot like no. everyone like we're used to seeing you know and i want to say thank you so much for for that for oh, thanks, changing thanks. your life that. and and doing what you're doing and advocating the way that you are in parliament it's it's really um from the bottom of my bottom yeah. of my heart it's really heartwarming to see All people right. fighting for these causes and um as heavy as these issues are to talk about on a monday morning yeah they need to be they need to be said and but they do need to be said yeah. and talking about them and doing things doing things about you know taking some action again is is really important that's what helps me get through my day yeah you know, because I do care about these issues, and I know a lot of people do. And you know, it's worse to sit back and do nothing. Yeah, you get more bitter and more, more negative, and you know, and and we you know, did generally have a chance of winning these things, and, mm. and we often do. Yeah, takes time sometimes, but we often get there. So, you know, and in and in the end, in a weird sort of way, even though these are big, deep, you know, heavy issues, mm. in a weird sort of way, you're you're. It sounds like you're actually happier doing this than you would be living a cushy banking life you know oh definitely <laughs> well yeah i think so. i think so yeah i mean yeah. i think if i was meant for that life i would have i'd still be there and mm. i'd be raking in the bonuses and living mm. a pretty shallow existence but um you know saying that i do have some good friends still in the industry and, and they're good people so i don't want to give the impression that they're sure. all wankers some some of them certainly are <laughs> um, and, and well but you know just 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 quickly um interesting i was able to turn that experience of working in the corporate world which is to, uh, to be honest, one of the key reasons I got pre-selected for Bob's spot because the Greens members wanted someone who had run run businesses and had worked in because we often get accused of not really having any economic nous. Mm. Um, but I worked with um, a number of – Bill Shorten and Sam Dessiari, a number of Labor politicians uh, and also some national and liberal politicians to get up the Royal Commission to the banks. So I was the first one in the country to campaign for that because mm. we'd had you know five years of evidence hearing from these victims of financial crime. They've been ripped off by banks and insurance companies, and it was heartbreaking. Some of them took their lives during this process. It was you know it was terrible working with people and seeing them die. Um, and we got there, we, and and so you know I, I could see from the work that I'd done with others that we can actually get results. Now, the Royal Commission, a lot of the changes have been legislated, but that really shook the most powerful corporations mm. in our country to their core. And I'm still speaking to people in there that go that, you know, they're still 
totally shaken by that experience. That was where politicians were standing up for people and we forced Turnbull's hand. I put a bill through the Senate that would have had a Royal Commission reporting to Parliament, not the, the government. The executive normally controls these things and we were one vote away from Parliament having their own Royal Commission. It's only wow. ever been done once in Australian history before and Turnbull had his hand forced and had to call the Royal Commission. Yeah. So, you know, there's a pathway there. Mm. You can see that you can make a difference but I'm only throwing that in because... I get a bit of shit from being an ex-banker. <laughs> I still cop stuff from some lefties in my own party for the fact that I used to be a banker, but yeah. I keep pointing out to them, I said, because I was a banker and I understand economics and I know what the root cause of the problem is, I've been part of that culture of greed and I know they put money before people and that's why they screwed so many people. This, and we've got to be careful that they, they do actually genuinely change. Um, I was able to do that and, you know, have... Take the piss as much as you like about me being an ex-business person, but that's that's why you need that yeah. experience. You've experienced politics. it, you know. You can, you sure, can, you can use it. Yeah. Wow. Again, Peter, I, I I would love to sit and chat to you all day and talk to you about a whole bunch of other things, including environmental and energy and climate policy and all that sort of stuff. But well, how about I think we make a deal? Leave it there. When, next time I come up to Byron, yes, we'll have things of stone and wood uh, beer, yes, or two, and yeah. I'll sit down with you again. I'd love to. I'd that love would, to do it again. That would be amazing. I would really love that. And again, thank you so much for your time and um, yeah, just being so down to earth and genuine. I really appreciate oh, it. Thanks, James. I really I really appreciate you coming and chatting and you mm. know. Um, for your listeners out there, um, if you think your local politician, no matter what colour they are, if you think they're doing a good job and they're listening to you and helping you, please, please thank them. Please tell them, tell them that because it does make a difference to them as well. Awesome. Yeah, we're all humans at the end of the day. <laughs> much, as that, much as it may not appear that way. <laughs> oh, wonderful. All right. Thanks, mate. Good on you, James. That was, that was really fantastic. Thank you. Um, yeah. Big, big, big issues. But... Just kidding. <laughs>